And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. The term public intellectual is bandied about a little too much uh, in our discourse, but it really does apply to uh, my friend E.J. Dion, a columnist for the Washington Post. He's half newsman, half scholar. In fact, he is a scholar at the Brookings Institute, uh, author of five books, including the most uh, recent, Why the Right Went Wrong, Conservatism from Goldwater to Trump and Beyond, which is really topical as we try and puzzle through what's going on in the politics of our country. Sat down with EJ to talk about his fascinating journey and uh, where we are today. EJ Dion, welcome. Always good to be with you. You're the most uh, one of the most interesting guys I know because you're a hybrid of uh, scholar and newsman, and generally the two don't uh, aggregate in one person. But uh, tell me, you, you've you've talked uh, at times about growing up in Fall River, Massachusetts, and how that was. Uh, influential in shaping the way you look at the world. Talk a little bit about Fall River and, and, and growing up there. Yeah, well, thank you. It's great to be with you. And sometimes I think the only difference between an academic and a journalist is that journalists have to write a lot faster. And so that was a <laughs> useful thing that I was forced to learn. Uh, but no, Fall River is really important to me in a lot of ways. Mary McGrory, the late columnist yeah. Mary McGrory, yeah. once said that Every baby born in Massachusetts is born with a campaign manager's gene. Uh, And if you grew up at a place like mine, it's a factory town, used to be big into uh, textiles. Um, We were once upon a time, long ago, the uh, um, largest cotton town uh, in the country. Then we went into shirts and dresses, and we were always on the wrong end of the economy. But, you know, a place like ours and towns like that all over Massachusetts, politics was part of everyday life. You remembered state rep races the way you remembered a Red Sox pennant race, and your loyalties ran deep. Uh, Sometimes I joke that uh, grudges and loyalties are often the only honorable motives in the politics of my dear home (laughs) state, although I'm happy to look sometimes to Illinois or Louisiana for comfort uh, about Massachusetts. And it was kind of the epicenter of politics when you were growing up. Right, well, Kennedy Kennedy, was running for president. Exactly. uh, no, and, and and so in two ways. One is just a sheer love of politics. I actually had a, uh, I guess he's a great cousin who ran on the Republican ticket in Massachusetts in 1934 for state treasurer when the Republican Yankees were running out of allies. Uh, they needed new ethnic groups in. They put in a balanced ticket, and Oscar Dion uh, was on that ticket. So politics and my And you guys were French, French, French Canadians. Yes. And that the French Canadians... Uh, and the Irish tangled until the New Deal when they kind of came together in the Democratic Party, most of them. Um, and uh, my grandfather, whom I never met, uh, got elected to the city council in Taunton, Massachusetts, nearby to win a bet. Uh, so politics was always Did there. Did you know, by the way, that Taunton, Massachusetts is the hometown of David Seamus? David and I recently had a very long conversation. The political director, yes. my, my old deputy at the White House. Well, he and I just had a very recently had a great conversation that included uh, – 
um, a good deal on his political career in Taunton. I noted that he was a real politician because he was the register of deeds exactly, in that part yes. of Bristol the, County, and only true politicos run for jobs like register. And of he deeds. like went door to door to get elected. That David was, uh, but he, it, it's it's significant that he his family were immigrants from Portugal, and this there's a large Portuguese population in in that in that town and in that part of the state right no our town fall river is very also probably has a, you know the portuguese are now the largest group in town um you could say for a long time that the portuguese the irish and the french canadians were the three biggest groups uh in fall river that we french canadians have have scattered more <laughs> uh although we re- fairly recently had a french canadian mayor who was a good guy i should add um and uh, so there was that part of it, but there was also growing up in a working-class town. Um, and even though, as I've written elsewhere, I grew up in a Republican family, the sort of consciousness of what the New Deal meant, what uh, trade unions meant, um, was just sort of embedded in you. I remember my even dad— Even though your father was a dentist, right? Right. And your mom was a teacher? Right. Mom was a teacher and a librarian. I always say that I admire—I disagreed with George W. Bush on a lot of things, but I admired him for marrying a teacher and a librarian. Um, but when I were sitting in your office at the Brookings Institute, and your mom— would have been proud of the fact that we're surrounded by books here. Right, although she probably wouldn't only, want them only, as messy only half as of them they are. Yeah, the, um, but, you know, my dad told me when I was a kid, I'll never forget it, that, uh, you know, if he had been poor or working class during the New Deal, he would have voted for Roosevelt, too. He actually started a um, free dental program for poor kids uh, in town that lasted all his life and some years huh. beyond. So... I joke sometimes he was the original compassionate conservative, or at least my that was sort of the ethic that my parents had. They were very religious. They were very involved in the church. And so uh, it wasn't long. By the time I was 13 years old, I started thinking conservatism really didn't work as an idea. The two big influences on my changing my politics were the Great Society, where I looked at what LBJ let, was— Let us just—let me interrupt for a second and note the fact that you were going through— these profound uh, f- uh, debates in your head when you were 13 years old, which isn't necessarily uh, normal, although I will say I was going through the same thing. about. The, I mean, in New York, I was choosing between the Lindsay Rockefeller Republicans or, and the yes. sort of the Tammany Hall offerings of the Democratic Party, but we're, uh, this is just to certify that we're both a couple of geeks. Yes, but exactly. That go we're ahead both and continue crazy. with your the, narrative. Uh, um, I was fascinated by the fights in New York. I actually, just to really sort of deeply prove my geekdom, when I was 13, I wrote all of the newspapers in New York to ask them to send me their editions the day after the 1965 election when Lindsay won. Yeah. Every newspaper in New York, God love them all, sent me a copy of that the is, election day is, edition. That is significant yes, and it's so, so yeah. uh, But also, let it not be said that journalists are always cruel and heartless. Everyone, whoever got those letters, sent this kid in Fall River to the World Telegram, the Journal American, the Mirror, all these papers that no longer exist. So you were going through this thought process about conservatism. Right. And the two things that really sort of affected me, one was um, just watching LBJ and the Great Society. And it bothered me that conservatives uh, were not trying to solve problems that I saw LBJ and the New Deal Democrats and, it should be said, the liberal Republicans Mm -hmm. uh, were trying to solve. Um, And the other was civil rights, where 
Um, you know, when I was in uh, high school, my Catholic high school, we had to pick a book for a book report in a religion class, and I picked Martin Luther King's Strength to Love. Uh, and that really changed, uh, you know, altered my way of looking at things about, the, you know, in my case, a Christian's obligation uh, to social and racial justice. And so those two things came together, and then the Vietnam War. Um, and what was really the 68 campaign, I was 16 at the time, was really decisive. And I may be one of the few people left in America who still admire both Gene McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy. Yeah. The world tends yeah. to split hard uh, on the liberal side between McCarthy and Kennedy. McCarthy was a guy who really captured my attention and maybe because my EJ stands for Eugene Joseph, just like Gene McCarthy's name. A McCarthy friend, by the way, once said that they tried to list him on the ballot in Indiana as E. Joseph McCarthy, figuring they might pick up some extra votes. <laughs> but, and then, but Bobby Kennedy sort of appealed to my gut. And watching that campaign, I never lost my affection for Gene McCarthy. But, you know, I'll, I'll, you know the night that Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, um, my best friend and I were, he came over to our house and we were watching the results yeah. of the California primary. And yeah. at that point, I had sort of shifted to liberal republicanism. And I was waiting to see if Senator Tom Kekel of California, one of the great liberal Republicans, was going to lose his primary. So I was up late. He did lose that primary uh, to a guy called Max Rafferty. And it was yeah. a real sign of what was going to happen right. to the Republican Party. But uh, I'll never forget we were sitting there and my friend, um, you know, the camera suddenly shifted back to Kennedy's podium. And my friend said he's been shot. And I said, oh, that's just, uh, you know, the network screw up. And no, he had been shot. And we stayed up all night yeah. watching, you know, yeah. in this vigil. And again, it's one of those experiences that it, it's not part of necessarily a fully rational process, but it created a kind of... Um, you know, where are we going? And over the years, I've just I, become I come more and more to admire what Bobby Kennedy was trying to do in that race. Yeah, no, I think it was one of the, it may be one of the most compelling campaigns uh, in American uh, presidential campaign history. And um, the, the degree to which he was willing to challenge orthodoxy in both parties and challenge sort of fundamental shibboleths uh, was really really compelling. I mean, I was a, I was a few years younger than you, and I was devoted uh, to Bobby, and 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 I don't think I fully appreciated as you didn't uh, just how profound what he was doing then was. I mean, the willingness uh, to uh, to challenge welfare, <laughs> you know, and uh, to raise some of the very I think legitimate concerns uh, about it. Uh, that we've seen over time uh, without abandoning the notion that we had an obligation uh, to help people who needed help lift themselves up. Uh, I mean, he was, uh, he was an extraordinary guy. And, well, it, and you wonder how history might have been different. Oh, you know. I, I've thought about that all my life, as I know you have. Yes. Um, what would have happened. And the other thing is he was, on the one hand, he took, and you could put it in quotes, seemingly conservative positions like that. But in other ways, he was a far more radical critic of the American system. And he did something in that campaign that progressives have struggled to do ever since and is quite relevant to what we're looking at now, which yes. is he managed to win very loyal support from African-Americans who knew deep in their gut that he was on their side. But he also won very loyal support from yes. working class whites yes. who also knew in their gut that he was very much on their side. And 
uh, given that what's happened to politics since Nixon, really, um, and given the flight of um, white working class voters uh, from the Democratic Party, you wonder what the future would have looked like if he had pulled that off. Now, it should be said he didn't have that support in the white South. We're talking about, you know, the Northeast, the Midwest, um, you know, because large parts of the uh, white South really hated Bobby Kennedy at the time. Right. And identi- well, identified him with desegregation. Right. Uh, and he was obviously, as attorney general, quite uh, active in uh, promoting uh, desegregation. Right. And, and the Kennedys were uh, part and parcel of uh, what followed after his assassination, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. Some of those, uh, you know, th- their identity was clearly cast with reform. Uh, on that side, but by the way, just to, for the sake of just a point that I've been thinking about a lot over the last decade, which is, you know, people like us who had these sympathies for McCarthy or Kennedy uh, at the time, people were very down on LBJ, and I think it is one of the turns in history that a lot of us look back and say, "Wait a minute, LBJ made a big mistake on the Vietnam War, but a lot of this would not have happened. A lot of the things we now." look back on as major progressive achievements would not have happened without Well, LBJ. I think it's fair to say, you know, uh, there, we may not, uh, we, I, I had uh, Caroline Kennedy uh, on this podcast the other day, and we talked about whether we would have uh, expanded the U.S. role in Vietnam had Jack Kennedy sur- uh, survived. And her strong feeling was no, based on her conversations with her mother and others, uh, you know, he was very wary based on his own experience of of that. But uh, but I think it's also fair to say that had he lived, I'm not sure we would have gotten the Civil Rights uh, Act and the Voting Rights Act. It was Lyndon Johnson's ability to uh, his unique ability to shepherd those bills through and the memory of Kennedy. The memory of Kennedy was know. powerful. And yeah. then the fact that the Republicans nominated Barry Goldwater in right. 1964. And, you know, it's interesting when you look back through that history Kennedy was really looking forward to running against Goldwater, A, because he thought he could beat him, yes. but B, because they were kind of friendly. And they'd actually had these conversations about a campaign where they debate all over the country. Yeah. Now, who knows, political realists in the Kennedy camp would have said, forget that. But still, it would have, you know, so the, the 64 election also helped a great deal in getting the rest of the great society through Congress. You see, it created you... these enormous Democratic majorities. It's one of the things... That I think where when people unfairly compare Obama to LBJ, you know, I am one of those who wishes the president had schmoozed a little more and brought up members of Congress yeah. more. But the political circumstances were very different. And Listen, that I, I, you couldn't I, replicate the political circumstance that LBJ had, beginning with the fact that there were those liberal Republicans that you talked about. Exactly. Well, it was a, it's a, was a much, there were, there were also emoluments that presidents could work with in terms of wooing voters that, uh, I mean, I don't diminish Ed, uh, Everett Dirksen's contribution to passage of the Civil Rights Act, but there's some nice roads in Illinois that are also <laughs> legacies of that uh, decision. Right. And Johnson had that ability that presidents don't don't have today. So something else happened when you were 16, which is that you started working at the uh, Fall River Herald. Uh, and uh, what what attracted you to to newspapers? Yeah, see, the, all my life there were kind of three, uh, three things that uh, fascinated me and drew me. One was politics. 
Uh, one was uh, I always I got interested as time went on in academics, um, but journalism was the other. My late dad used to get four Sunday newspapers and bring we bring them home after church and. Um, you know, we always had newspapers around the house. My dad loved to read political columnists, funnily enough. And um, the, um, uh, you know, I've always wondered how much would he disagree with my column. My dad died when I was 16. And yeah. he was in a kind of, he himself was in a political journey because he hated that. He was against the Vietnam War before I was, uh, interestingly. Um, uh, but... Um, I went to work at the Herald News, so I loved journalism, and I thought it was interesting. And, you know, I got that job partly because I could get that job. My first job was working in the summer uh, to help pull papers off the press and do paper routes in town that, other, that weren't covered. Um, and I even learned about how informal labor relations work because every paper route was assigned a certain amount of time, which happened to be somewhat larger than the actual amount of time it took to do the paper route because every one of us wanted to get that extra buck sixty an hour. Uh, and, um, you know, there was actually – it was a lot of fun because in order to live by our informal rules, there was a local party boss who ran a dime store in the neighborhood that uh, – not a dime store, but a kind of variety store yeah. in our, the neighborhood I – I uh, did papers in, so I would always, at the end of my route, sit down and chat with him about what was going on in politics. But so I always loved newspapers, and I, you know, I worked the next summer, you know, cutting copy, um, you know, coming in at six in the morning and cutting all the copy for the guys who came in and women who came in later. Uh, and um, so it never left me. And it was, you know, I, when I was in college, even though I worked a lot of political campaigns in those days, I always say I did win. One election, I was elected as an alternate delegate for George McGovern in 1972. I uh, proudly say that I beat the mayor's wife in our town. So my one political uh, achievement. Mayor of Chicago uh, didn't make it either. Well, so yeah, no, it was a mess. It was <laughs> although we have one of the more regular McGovern slates anybody put together, but that's another story. Um, but I also kept writing, and I worked on the college paper. I uh, I made some extra money writing for the paper in New Bedford, the nearby town. Um, you know, some covering selectmen's meetings, the town council, and yeah. Westport stuff like that. So journalism always just drew me. Were those and, experiences helpful to you in terms of, as you went along those those early experiences covering politics at the most elemental level? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's true of anybody. I, I, I think, just to jump ahead in my personal story, um, one of the most educational things I got to do was the four years I spent covering the state government in New York. Yeah. Uh, from uh, 78 to 80, I got released for a year to cover the presidential campaign in 81 you, and you 82. You skipped an important fact, which we'll cover after we take this break, and that is that you went to work for the New York Times uh, right out of college. Right. Well, what happened is I got a fellowship to go to Wait a Oxford. Second. Uh, we, got, we do have to take the break. Okay, let's do it. Okay. So, go ahead. Oh, are we back on? Yeah. So you were telling me about your, uh, your, your, uh, how, how so, you ended up at the Times. So, in um, I got a fellowship to go to Oxford for a couple of years, and um, they're called Rhodes Scholarships. <laughs> yeah, that aren't was they? was one of those. Yeah, it's, okay. Uh, All right, fine. Let's let's <laughs> let's not be falsely modest here. Um, and. Um, during the 72 campaign, a couple of professors, a guy called Bill Schneider, who later was on yeah, CNN sure. for many years, and uh, Gary Warren and another student and I reanalyzed the polls the Times had done 
in the 1972 election, and that sort of created this fascination I've had with polling all my life. And we were reanalyzing them for academic purposes, but uh, we, I got, that's how I got connected to the New York Times. And wonderful man called Jack Rosenthal, who had yeah. written the polling stories, later became editorial page editor. I was visiting with him trying to sell him my thesis, undergraduate thesis, which was on Italians in East Harlem. I was interested in racial change, and I had worked on a campaign, in political campaign in East Harlem, a Beat the Bosses campaign, where the bosses beat the hell out of us. Uh-huh. Doug Schoen, actually the pollster, got me involved. He was a friend in college. I got fascinated by this neighborhood. Jack didn't want to buy my thesis, but he said, what are you going to be doing in your years between Oxford? And I said, you know, I'd uh, probably try to get a job with Time or Newsweek to kick around Europe. And French is actually my first language, being a Canuck from Fall River. And he looked at me and said, why not work for the best? And I said, well, (laughs) sure. I didn't ask him what he meant. The late Flora Lewis I, I, so when I was at Oxford, I took a night boat train to Paris one night for, I think, 25 bucks and showed up. And Flora Lewis hired me for the summer of 1974. She was, she was a bureau, yeah, yeah, she was a bureau chief, later a legendary columnist. Yes. And so I worked the summer of 1974 for the New York Times before I went back to Oxford. Um, and, to, uh, the, um, and I got to write a lot of news. I always said I was a war profiteer. Uh, because the Cyprus War happened that summer. The bureau emptied out, and a lot of time I was the only person sitting in Paris for the New York Times, and most people in New York had no idea who I was. And just to show— Pretty pretty, pretty fortunate for a kid. Oh, totally. You know, I I think the world is divided between people who claim they did it all by themselves and people who understand how much luck is involved if you get anywhere in life, and I had a lot of luck. Um, And— you know, it's funny, a lot of editors in New York didn't know who I am, and it shows how much the world has changed. This was 1974. Some of them thought I was a woman hiding behind my initials. <laughs> uh, and I guess they figured that Flora, a pioneer for women in journalism, had hired a woman. But uh-huh. anyway, I, so I was hired by the Times in 75 to help set up. One of my jobs was to help set up what became the New York Times CBS poll. And while I was in England, I worked for a polling firm also when oh, I was in grad studying school. Studying the British election. Yeah, right? and they, it was, I worked on, uh, given, interestingly given the news, on the 1975 common market referendum. Uh-huh. And the firm I worked for was working for Harold Wilson, the Labor Party prime minister, who was in the pro-Europe wing of the Labor Party. Um, and so that's how I got into journalism. And I did this polling and other stuff through 76. <coughs> and then... Um, you know, did sort of six months of night police and all that. And then I got drawn into... Uh, you know, I did that as well. I found that some of the most important time I ever spent, my editor. I, I want, I, our, we have parallel lives. And yeah, I, think so. I came to the Tribune out of college, and I, they knew I knew a lot about politics, and that ultimately that's what, what I, I would do. And the editor said, you know, you know, you know everything about politics... Uh, but you don't really know about enough about reporting yet, and you don't know about life, you know, in the big city, and you're going to go on nights for a while. And like everyone, I sort of, I, I didn't go with an complete enthusiasm, uh, and it turned out to be the most extraordinary experience because I was exposed to things I never would have been exposed to. Right. No, that's that's absolutely right. There's a Walter Mears. Uh, yeah, great this AP is in reporter. the great reporter, great AP reporter. I'll never forget, this was quoted in Boys on the Bus, that great uh, mm-hmm. book on journalism. By the way, I, book. The, yeah. I gave Highly that book. Highly When I became a national political reporter years later, I gave that book to my mother. She read it and she said, really, this is what you're going to be doing? <laughs> it's kind of with a little bit of horror. But Walter Mears famously said, 
Uh, if you can't cover a five-car fatal on 128, you don't belong as a political reporter. Yeah. 128 being the yes, big highway course. around Boston. And there is something about learning those kind of ropes that we probably do a lot less of now. I yeah. think the, 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 And we can be somewhat nostalgic about that, but there was still some utility in oh, learning. Oh, listen, I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Luddite, I guess, about this, <laughs> but I look back to that era when, you know, a lot of the people who were mentors to you and me and role models, the Broders and the Germans and so on, would get out of their offices and go out into the country and uh, and knock on doors and, and really get a feel for what was going on. I suspect if we had more of that now, maybe the Trump thing would have been a little less surprising to so many people. So I miss that, you know, uh, aspect of there just isn't the luxury that we had then to – uh, allow that, but I also don't think there is this cultivation of that kind of reporting. So, right. Although, I mean, I, I, there is some of it. We haven't killed it all off, and uh, you know, I still, I, I love visiting local papers when I'm traveling around the country. Partly because uh, it is still the case that local reporters know a heck of a lot about their communities and editors as well. Um, but so it's not completely wiped out. But the changing economics of it have made it much more much, much more difficult it's well, funny you said by the way what you said when i read your book your memoir i had exactly the same uh reaction in reverse that we had remarkably you know obviously our politics are somewhat similar to say the least yes. but it was uh, the life experience was remarkably the same and i you know i always i sat sat there reading how you switched from journalism into political consulting and i Thought you know, I was in a way at in a similar hinge point because, as I said at the beginning, politics was something, you know, prior to a lot of things for me, and something that's always grabbed me. So I had, for better or worse, I very much identified with your story as well. One part of your story that I wanted to ask you about, just a matter of personal interest, in my old hometown of New York City, you covered one of the most interesting. Uh, mayor's races ever, and I'm aficionado of mayor's races, which was Ed Koch versus Mario Cuomo, and there were some other players in there uh, as well uh, who were colossuses in New York uh, politics, but that was a hell of a race. It was an amazing race. I think you had, if I remember right, 11 candidates at the start, and you had really significant people like Bella Abzug, the legendary feminist. Herman Badillo. Herman Badillo, yes. um, so who later became a Republican, but first, was... First major Hispanic uh, exactly, a politician. Puerto Rican figure. He was a congressman from the South Bronx. Um, you had Percy Sutton, a yes. very important African-American politician. Yeah. You had everything represented on that ballot. Every yeah. kind of New Yorker had somebody to identify with. And in the end, in the runoff, it came down to um, uh, to Cuomo and Koch. And that's where I first got to know uh, Mario Cuomo, although I was a very junior reporter. So in the general election, I spent a lot of time with the other two candidates who turned out Cuomo stayed on the ballot because, as you know, New York had a liberal party. Right. Uh, so even though he lost the primary, he got to be on the ballot. So that primary just continued. And uh, Cuomo and Koch were so dominant that the Republican and Conservative Party candidate were reduced to sideshows. And I think in the end, they each got about 3% of the vote. But I'll They were never- yours. That, I remember that from being a junior political reporter, too, which is, okay, that, that's, that was my big leg up because uh, they assigned me to cover Jane Byrne, who was running for mayor of Chicago, and they were absolutely certain she was going to lose. Right. And, uh, of course, she ended up winning, which was a great 
very advantageous to me. But anyway, Kachin, so, I just want to say what one of my favorite experiences in politics. A great liberal Republican in that race called Roy Goodman. Yeah, and he was, he was a state standing, senator from the district where I grew up in Manhattan. Right, and uh, and he was a wonderful man who had a sense of humor about himself in life. And one day he was giving a news conference. Cuomo and Koch are dominating the news. I show up on a street corner in Manhattan. I am the only reporter there. So Roy Goodman gets up, holds up a piece of paper on his plan for housing or transportation, whatever it was. He reads one sentence in a very stentorian voice and says, all right, that's enough. Let's go for a cup of coffee. And he knew that he was dead. But it was actually as a candidate. But it was actually fascinating to watch that. But also that race, you know, it divided sort of, um, you know, there was an element of machine politics where Ed Koch managed to get the old organizations on his side. Which is remarkable because Ed Koch rose to prominence in New York politics by beating Tammany Hall. Carmine DiSapio, exactly. And then, um, you know, there was a deep ethnic split. Cuomo got the Italians and the white Catholics. Generally, Koch got Jews, African-Americans split. Um, Koch did make some inroads into the more conservative Catholic vote because he was pro-death penalty and Cuomo was resolutely Which is also remarkable because Koch emerged as a, as, as a liberal candidate in, out of the village, Greenwich Village in uh, Manhattan, uh, anti-war candidate. Uh, and reinvented himself as kind of uh, the the voice of uh, kind of Archie Bunker conservatism in New York. Uh, no, there's a lot of truth to that. And um, both of us are fascinated by political consultants. Um, and uh, David Garth. Yes. Uh, where early, you even had big figures in, in, in political consulting. And um, there was a kind of David Garth primary because um, – Cuomo and Koch, Garth could easily have worked for Cuomo and for a variety and of reasons. And did in years later. Yeah, and, and for a variety of reasons, I ended up working for Koch in that race. And I, I always love uh, – one of the things I liked about Garth is he was willing to use very long political slogans because they actually conveyed something. And I'll never forget his slogan for Koch was – after eight years of charisma, Lindsay, right. and four years of the clubhouse, A-beam, a yes. uh, why not try competence? Yeah. And, uh, and it worked. Yeah, yeah. Um, you ended up, you went back to Europe for the Times. You covered the campaigns, I guess, in 1980. You went back to Europe in the Times. I wanted to ask you about this because uh, you did a stint covering the Vatican. And I know faith is very important to you. Um, and you were there at a kind of a, a momentous time because Pope John Paul uh, came on the scene. Uh, t- talk about that and talk about him and your sense of him as someone who comes from kind of a, a progressive bent within Catholicism. Right. It was, I mean, it was a great time to be covering the Vatican. He had uh, come in in 78. I was in Rome from 84 to 86. He was at the height of his influence um, you know, one lucky thing I did is I persuaded the New York Times that it was very important to cover every papal trip. So thanks to John <laughs> Paul, I got to go to some amazing places all across Africa, India, um, um, South America twice. It was So that all by itself was a fascinating education. Um, and when I was covering the Vatican, what was going on were what I like to refer to as the North American heresy, which was about sex, and the South American heresy, which was about Marxism and liberation uh, theology. Um, and my sort of attitude toward John Paul is very complicated. As a human being, I deeply admired him, um, and I saw a kind of personal uh, compassion 
in him with, for example, members of the press corps who had personal tragedies whom he engaged with. And that was – so he was a real deal in that sense of being, you know uh, – I always say the most amazing thing to run into in the world is a Christian who actually behaves like a Christian, and I say that as somebody who is a Christian. Um, and I also respected his analysis of the church, which is as a sort of practical political matter, he felt that um, if the church gave in too much to what he saw as secularizing trends— it would actually weaken himself in the long run. And as an abstract proposition, I could understand that. And my belief to this day is his biggest achievements were actually progressive achievements because he ratified the turn of Catholicism after Vatican II toward an embrace of democracy and human rights. One of the most moving things I will ever cover as a journalist is his visit to the synagogue uh, in Rome, which is really extraordinary. And he was a resolute foe of anti-Semitism. Um, so he shifted the, you know, he, he ratified what Pope John the Twenty Third had done on human rights, religious rights, and democracy. Um, internally, he supported the most conservative forces in the Catholic Church. And I used to sort of say, you know, people ask, well, you're a Catholic and you're covering the Catholic Church. How does that affect you? And I said, sometimes um, the more I identified with my brand of Catholicism, which is a kind of liberal, more liberal Catholicism, the more I could be critical of him. The more I looked at him from the outside as examining a powerful political figure who, uh, on some important issues, and by the way, that includes social justice. We forget he was a very pro-labor pope, for example. Um, I had a lot of sympathy for him. But it was so I, 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 I've written about this elsewhere. I, it was a complicated um, thing for me, but it was just so fascinating to have the opportunity to sort of cover the church and yeah. to have, you know, I was grateful for, you know, the religious education I got. I always tell students that the most useful course I took in college was a course called Eschatology and Politics. Imagine that on your uh, transcript. And it was a very liberal, uh, wonderful theologian called Harvey Cox, who's still a dear friend, who had us read all these uh, liberation theologians in mimeograph, a form of printing no one listening to this podcast except people who are aged will remember. Yes. Uh, and so when it came time for me 15 years later to cover the condemnations of the liberation theologians, Harvey had already had us read him. Uh, and so it was just, it was an extremely gratifying, exciting time, where it, which forced me to think about a whole lot of things. How do you think now, uh, looking at this Pope, Francis, and reflecting on him, you 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 studied the liberation uh, uh, theology, um, and it was discredited then. And now you have a, a a pope who has really come in a in from an entire entirely different place. Right, he is. I mean, you know, it's funny because in his early part of his life, he was actually critical of some of the forces on the left in the Latin American church as well, although he has very publicly made his peace with a number of, he's visited with a number of the, the liberate or had them visit with him, a number of the uh, liberation theologians. Um, I always felt that a Francis correction, if you will, uh, or move in this direction was inevitable. I just wasn't sure it was going to happen in my uh, lifetime, and you even saw that in the two conclaves, where um, you know you had a collection of votes in those conclaves that wanted to move in a somewhat different direction from Benedict uh, and John Paul, um, and 
it is not as if Francis has radically broken with uh, Benedict or John Paul. It is much more a matter of emphasis, where Francis's emphasis is so much more on the social justice aspect of Catholicism, so much more on our obligations to the poor. And he hasn't really changed the church's formal view on abortion or gay marriage or any of those issues. But, but the emphasis the is leading. so different. And since we are both Chicago files, uh, in many ways he's like Cardinal Arch, uh, Cardinal Bernadine, yes. Joseph Bernadine, the great cardinal in the, who who was revered in the city, not just by Catholics. He was a pastoral figure for the entire city, and very humble, very much uh, uh, focused on. Uh, on the poor, on the disadvantaged, on and people he, who needed help. And he talked about something called the seamless garment, which is he linked Catholic teaching on abortion with teaching opposition to the death penalty, support for the poor, right. and opposition to war except as a last resort. And so in many ways, I think Francis is a reappearance, if you will, of the approach to Catholicism that Cardinal Bernadine represented. And interestingly, I think Archbishop Supich now yes, in who, Chicago is very arch, much in the Bernadine tradition. Yeah. Yes. I, I want to just tell you one quick story, and then I, I, we, I need to move this forward to contemporary political events. I could talk to you for a long time, EJ. But uh, I, was on a plane with, uh, I was on a plane with Cardinal Bernadine once, uh, sitting behind him from uh, Washington to New York, and he was... Um, he was in coach, which was in and of itself unusual. Cardinal Cody, who preceded him, was a kind of imperious figure. And there was a guy sitting next to him who had had a few too many and was t- just chatting the whole time. And when, they got, when we got to Chicago, the guy said, Hey, Father, I'm sorry I've been bending your ear. He said, I didn't even ask you, where, where, where is your church? And Bernadine said, well, I kind of move around <laughs> That's and, a- and never noted that he was the cardinal. And I thought that was such a such a, a disarming thing. The humility of the man was so appealing, you know. My favorite Chicago Catholic experience was with the late Father Andrew Greeley. Yes. And he had been a hero of mine and had been very kind to me from afar. I some of his books flying around here. I do. Uh, and he had been very kind to me from afar when I was covering the Vatican. He'd actually written a nice note to the Times. But I never met him, and I'd read him since I was in college. And so I found myself sitting next to him, and we had a wonderful conversation. And I was on crutches at the time. I had wrecked my knee skiing, and Father Greeley carried my bags for me at O'Hare Airport. And I looked at him, and I said, I will tell everyone that it can never be said that uh, Father Andrew Greeley did not observe the corporal works of mercy because he helped me across O'Hare at a difficult moment. He was an interesting character. Yes, he really I was. Mean, um, we're we're just we're going to take another short break, and we'll be back with E.J. Dion. The let's let's talk about today. Um, I want to talk about uh, your latest book, Why the Right Went Wrong, because it has a lot to speak to the moment in which we're in. But I also want to note that the first book you wrote was Why Americans Hate Politics. Do you think? Uh, how do you think Americans feel about politics right now? Uh, probably not very good at the moment. Um, the um, you know the the splits, the the divisions between us are far deeper than when I wrote that earlier book. And um, I don't think any of us. I don't think I anticipated how deeply divided we would become. And in a way, some of the, the new book, "Why the Right Went Wrong," covers some of the same ground. Uh, not all of it, but you know, there's an overlap in the history because I go back to Goldwater. 
Um, and, um, you know, my view of the right is different now than it was then because I think the right is not the same as it was then. Yes. I think there was, um, you know, more openness on the right uh, back then. Uh, and, you know, I think... Well, and Goldwater was in some ways a libertarian on some so- on well, social issues, you know. Well, Goldwater, I think, actually set the frame for the current right. Goldwater is a very complicated figure because, on the one hand, he was personally very appealing. He was a warm guy. Most everybody liked him personally. Later, he became more libertarian and very critical of the religious right. But if you look at the campaign he ran in 64 or his book, um, uh, The Conscience of a Conservative, it really could be a, a Tea Party manifesto. And so while I respect Goldwater as a figure, I think he set the right on a certain road um, that it, that the Tea Party has really picked up on. And I think he set up the Republican Party um, to uh, uh, to constantly disappoint its own supporters. The first line of my book is, the history of contemporary American conservatism is a story of disappointment and betrayal. And I argued that Republican politicians had to make a series of promises on shrinking government and rolling back cultural change that they could never possibly keep which then led to this rebellion later on. But a lot of those promises were rooted in Goldwaterism. What about the, um, what about the overlay of the e- economy and these sort of radical revolutionary changes in, in the economy that have occurred over the last 40 years? Uh, you know, there's, there's no doubt that th- these cultural uh, issues are a big part of this combustibility. But, but what's happened to towns like Fall River uh, and towns like it all over this country in terms of changes in the economy have certainly been a major component of it. I think that um, when you look at the rise of Trump, he was his supporters were rebelling against many things. One of them was um, a Republican Party that took white working class votes for granted and continued to put forward, you know, basically tax cut for, cuts for the rich proposals uh, that didn't do much for these communities. And, well, and then trade. I and mean. trade as well. And so, you know, oddly, you had a kind of populist movement led by this billionaire, or at least a guy who claims to be uh, a billionaire. Uh, and, um, and and so that's part of it. Um, I think when this is all over, we're going to have a big job in front of us analytically to try to figure out how much of Trumpism was this economic discontent, which is legitimate and which progressives really need to speak to? Yeah. It's, it does, you know, it's a challenge well, to beyond us. Beyond partisanship, at least as it's much. probably the greatest challenge we face as a country is figuring out how we adjust to this new economy in a way that keeps faith with this notion that in America, if you work hard, you can get ahead. Right. And, and that these, you know, people out there who are angry did not make up their reasons for being angry. There are legitimate, uh, there's, there's a legitimacy to their protest. Uh, but we will also have to look back and say what part of the Trump movement was not primarily about this economic protest, but really was a culturally, yeah. uh, you know, people who are uneasy with the changes in the country, with the changes in the culture. And then in the case of a with piece of it outside, you know, outright racism. I yeah. mean, what was right. birtherism? Uh, if not something that played at racial feeling in the country. Yeah. Um, what uh, What's your sense of why? I mean, Trump has uh, found a base. And the question, I guess, of the moment is, can he expand beyond that base? Uh, or is it a self-limiting kind of movement? And I guess juxtaposed with that is, how do you assess 
uh, Hillary as a candidate? Um, the way I've been putting it is that unless you repeal both women's suffrage and the Voting Rights Act, it's very hard to see Trump being elected president because he is so weak on the whole with women, running way behind, even in traditionally Republican groups of women. He's not running where he needs to be. And then obviously uh, Latinos and African-Americans are rejecting him. Now, the one opportunity I think he has is to try to push votes off Clinton onto the third party candidates, uh, Jill Stein and um, um, Gary, and Johnson. Gary Johnson. That's all right. Uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't remember Aleppo, so you don't, yeah, you're right, free exactly. not to remember yeah, him. Yeah, that's I, – I, um, I, I should have some sympathy with him. Um, actually, the Aleppo comment probably helped Clinton a little bit because mm-hmm. it reminded people that, hey, we are – he's not going to be commander-in-chief. Right. But, um, you know, I, I think Trump has a ceiling uh, that's lower than her ceiling. Yeah. And so he needs the anti-Trump vote to be cut up. And that's why what I think will be her strategy over the next couple of weeks, which is to try to build herself up to tell people, wait a minute, the reasons to vote for me, not just against Trump – are very important because she's got to hold on to the vast majority of the anti-Trump constituency. Yeah, and it's a task because there are some deep-seated attitudes about her that she is pushing up against, and it's an unforgiving environment here. The convention was a wonderful opportunity for her, which she took full advantage of, to tell her story through an unfiltered lens, and she profited from it. Trump helped, of course, with his own antics, but she profited from it. You don't get those opportunities very often in a campaign, and now she has to do this through a kind of cloudy lens. Uh, no, that's true. I, I think one of the – this also to me, and I, I wrote about this recently, a challenge to journalism, which is when you look at all of the various you know Trump scandals and allegations of scandals, there's such a long list that the Atlantic – magazine put out this long cheat sheet of all the Trump scandals. Whenever some new Trump thing comes up, uh, a lot of times it disappears. Uh, I like to say there are he's run so many ethical stop signs that reporters can't give him all the tickets he's due. Whereas, um, you know, we constantly come back with Clinton to three of the same three, you know, scandals or so-called scandals, the server, uh, the speaking fees and the foundation. And I think in, in in we are sitting in a period right now where I think there's some interesting questioning going on about how long can we make the server a central uh, issue? Can we keep well, going judging from back this commander in chief forum the other day? It seems like it hasn't it hasn't run its course yet. Right, but uh, judging from the backlash of how much of the commander in chief right. forum was devoted to the server. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what impact that has going forward, because as you know better than anybody, there is a dynamic to these campaigns where um, some event in an unexpected way can change the course of how things are discussed. And I am one of the things I am thinking about a lot this week is whether, um, you know, the reaction obviously was primarily among Clinton people, but it had some impact on the broader conversation about you know, did all of that time have to be devoted to her emails? Right. I think that's a live question now. Yeah. Uh, in no, a way, it, it, may shape, it may shape may shape some of the questioning in the debate. Correct, and and, 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 the and to her benefit, of Trump and to her benefit. Yeah. yeah. So I think, um, you know, that forum um, in the very very short run 
may have seemed to benefit Trump because he slid by a lot of things. The things he said have a much longer life. I couldn't agree with you more. I think, I think it, you know, it wasn't a good night for her. She didn't do well. She got angry, and, and, and she, her irritation showed throughout. But I think in the long run, she may profit from that because he gave her so much to work with, and now the media is on notice that there are limits to their exploration of these issues. There's a, you know, and, and certainly the moderators will be, uh, Matt Lauer took such a beating. Um, let me ask you uh, just a couple of other things. On this issue of Trump uh, uh, trying to knock votes off of her to the third party and make his, I mean, clearly he's trying to galvanize Republicans with his anti-Obama statements and so on. Uh, but in so doing that, um, does he not run the risk of galvanizing some sort of uh, uh, reaction from constituencies within the Democratic Party who are not that enthused about Hillary but uh, are angry uh, about attacks on the president? And uh, so. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the, you know, the question is, will she get enough turnout from the old Obama coalition. One thinks particularly from African-Americans who turned out in record numbers uh, for President Obama, uh, to some degree from Latinos, um, and then also young from people. Bernie Kratz and young, young people. people yeah. um, and I think Trump's radicalism or extremism, uh, the sense of threat people feel from the possibility of a Trump presidency, um, can inspire a lot of turnout. We, we forget that sometimes fear inspires at least as much turnout as hope. And I think Trump sort of strikes fear in the hearts of a lot of not only traditional Democrats, but middle of the road Well, uh, and we see that with his – I mean, he's, he's trailing among college-educated Republicans, a group that Romney carried by 14 14- – College-educated whites, I should say, a group Romney carried by 14 percent. So here's my, uh, here's my question for you. You wrote a book called Why the, uh, How the Right Went Wrong. Uh, what about uh, the left? And um, is, it, is it also a, f- a viable argument, a, a valid argument, that, um, that the left o- overpromises that, uh, that there is – a sense of lack of delivery uh, on the part of these same voters who are who are uh, affected by Trump. Some of the people who responded to Bernie, uh, for example, um, who don't believe that um, progressive Democrats or Democrats generally have delivered on the progressive promise. Uh, two things on that um, on opposite sides, if you will, of that question. Uh, one is that. Um, I don't think the situation of the Republicans and the Democrats left and the right are equivalent. Well, they're because not. I think that the Republican Party has radicalized all the way down to the grassroots in a way that the Democrats haven't. And you see that in the behavior in Congress. You see that in the proportion of Republicans who call themselves conservative or very conservative versus the proportion of Democrats who call themselves liberal or very liberal. So I'm very much with Tom Mann and Orm Ornstein in arguing that this is something in particular that has happened to the Republican Party. Yeah. That doesn't mean that progressives don't have problems of our own. And, um, you know, I think that um, the obstruction to, of the president's program 
uh, in Congress nonetheless disappointed a lot of Democrats because they a lot of Democrats hoped for more than they were able to get after the first two years out of the president. The president frustrated Democrats early on, I think, by having more hope that he could move Republicans than was possible given the current Republican Party. And that was, after all, the promise of his campaign. Right. And, and it was he, – he felt obligated to meet it. Well, I think it's it was, not just an obligation. I think it was an impulse that in order to knit the country back together that there needed to be some level of cooperation. And he, in fact, was involved with uh, – uh, he, he helped lead uh, Democrats in support of Bush's emergency program three months before he came to office. And Democrats supported – a Republican president. Right. More, Republi- more Democrats voted for that than Republicans yeah. did in the end. So but uh, it, it was a disappointment. But, but my but point let is me not just, to, but, yeah. uh, just to finish the point real quick. Um, you know, so there was, and you dealt with it, there was progressive discontent with president at various moments along the way. But even if you sort of um, take the president out of it, um, this long-term rise of inequality throughout the wealthy countries, but particularly here and in a couple, few other places, um, is a problem that progressives, uh, if you will, have it as their job to fix. And we haven't figured out yet all the things that can be done. Now, I think there are a lot of specific programmatic things. Clinton has been, I think, good at listing very specific things that you can do to push back against it some. Um, but I think that the, um, you know, the left has to, the, the left. And by that, I include very moderate, you know, you know, center left people, um, you know, has a lot of work to do. And the other thing is we have to adapt um, programs that worked reasonably well in an industrial economy yes. uh, to this very different economy. And that includes how workers get some sense of bargaining power that the you know the decline of unions is a big part of uh rising inequality but the unions have declined in part because the whole nature of work has changed it was easier to uh organize ford and gm than it is to organize uh, a lot of the new economy or right. a lot of clerical Where people jobs are entrepreneurial are, on their own and right and yeah. so i think there is a real need for some real progressive rethinking. So I, I think there are real issues for the left, and you're seeing it, again, all across the West, not simply yes. in the United States. as you and, are seeing these populist right-wing movements all right. across. and that the left is often moving. A lot of the votes that move to the populist right aren't just from conservatives who radicalize. They're from working-class voters who once voted with the left, right. who are now fed up and voting. And I think part of it, you know, is that the... You, and you touch on the models that we uh, that we rely on the, the, were adapted for another age. They seem antiquated. And one of the challenges, it seems to me, is to take the tools that are available to us in the 21st century uh, to think more creatively about solutions to some of these problems. And uh, so to adapt a commitment to, to address some of these challenges but not be – wedded to, uh, you know, old means of achieving them. And, I, you know, so I, I think there but, – but I thoroughly agree that I think that the, there's more coherency to the Democratic 
coalition than there is to the Republican Party right now. And they're going to have a hell of a problem once this election is over, assuming Trump doesn't win, in figuring out where to go because you've got these pro-trade, corporate, uh, uh, pro-immigration reform Republicans, uh, and then you've got these populist Republicans, and you've got the evangelical overlay. And it's, it's hard to construct a tent large enough for that group. Here's what I am hoping for, but don't expect. I mean, I wish I could, uh, I wish I were confident that this would happen. If you look at non-extreme conservatives and progressives, um, both sides have to care about the future of a competitive economy and that it is simply bad for capitalism to have these inequalities yeah, grow. Yeah, if 20% it's are bad. progressing and 80% are, are just struggling it, to hang on. It's bad for economic growth, um, and it creates uh, all kinds of opposition that conservatives shouldn't want to the market system. Um, they have a real interest in trying to solve some of these problems. And in my book, one of my heroes, with apologies to a good Illinois Democrat, you know, I'm thinking of Adlai Stevenson, is Dwight Eisenhower. And Eisenhower was a Republican who was willing to say the changes that the New Deal brought about were largely necessary. As a political matter, if we tried to repeal them, we'd be shellacked. But as a practical matter, capitalism needed these corrections. We are in another period where we need to reform capitalism in order to save it. Uh, And that is something that conservatives ought to be more open to uh, than they have been. Uh, I would love to see a world in which, um, you know, and this is in my, just to go all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, I was attracted in my youth to some of these progressive Republicans who were trying to figure out how could you be pro-market but also compassionate? How could you say government can't do everything, but it's got to do some important things? I'd love to see conservatism a return to that kind of vision of itself, uh, rather than either a far-right, almost European version that Trump is offering us, or a radical market version that I think history has shown us doesn't work. That's mm-hmm. my hope. I, I wish I were more confident that we could bring it about. Well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see. There's going to be a lot of soul-searching, uh, one hopes, after this election, and uh, we'll see where it all leads. E.J. Dion, always great to be with you. Real Thank joy you to be so with much. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.